0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Emmanuel Amazin. Emmanuel is a machine learning engineer at Stripe. Emmanuel, welcome finally, I should say, to the Twimmel AI Podcast. How are you, my friend? Thanks for having me. I'm I'm great. How are you? I am doing well. I'm doing well. So Emmanuel and I have known each other for at least a couple of years now, maybe mm-hmm. more. Yeah. Um, we met when you were at Insight. Uh, you were responsible for the Insight Data Science AI pro- program. Uh, is, what was that's... your official responsibility? Because I've also I've interviewed Ross uh, on the show as well with Insight. Yeah. What was your official role there?
1: So I had a role very similar to, to Ross's. Ross was was uh, my equivalent in New York. Uh, so I was leading the AI program there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have uh, sort of professional education programs, fellowships in many different domains, state science, state engineering, uh, and we have one in AI. And so I was leading uh, that one.
0: Uh, and so usually we start these interviews by having folks share a little bit about their journey. Why don't you tell us... Um, how you got to Stripe, and uh, perhaps more importantly, how you got to being a published author. Congratulations.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, happy to. Uh, so I started off, um, so I think like many people uh, in this field, my, my passion for ML started with uh, Jeff Hinton's uh, Coursera classes way back in the day. Okay. Um, I feel like for most people, it's either Jeff Hinton or Andrew Ng that, that got them started.
0: Team Andrew here nothing ah. nothing against Jeff yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then
1: after that I uh, I started my career my professional career I did data science at a startup in the Bay Area which got acquired by Zipcar later um, I spent two years there and actually after that I, I joined insight so after having been a data scientist i I joined a role that was much more about sort of like professional education and mentorship uh, and so for a couple of years at insight I mentored um, in aggregate it was over a hundred fellows that were PhDs and engineers that wanted to transition uh, and get a job in like the field of machine learning. So that was amazing. Um, and I, through my work there, I learned a lot about where it takes to transition and where it takes to build successful ML projects. Um, a lot of that is in the in the book you mentioned. Um, after a couple of years there, I wanted to go back towards something more, uh, more of an IC role for me, more of an individual contributor. And so I went at Stripe um, because it sort of had the perfect blend of what I was looking for in a, in a role, which was it blends very heavy and challenging machine learning with sort of very heavy engineering requirements, um, mm-hmm. which I think is where the field is going in general. And so I wanted to, yeah. to do more of that.
0: We haven't mentioned the title of the book yet, but it is Building Machine Learning Powered Applications, Going from Idea to Product. When did the book become available? The book became available last week. Nice, nice. And so I have one of the first copies of it right here in my hand, and it was signed by you. Thank you very much. So the book you has know, got this this uh, subtitle going from idea to product. Is it a conceptual book, a technical book?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. The title comes from, yeah, the desired scope of the book. So the desired scope is really to to give uh, tools to aspiring engineers and data scientists Uh To go from sort of either a PM has an idea or you have an idea to you have something in production that is actually uh, being used by uh, real people. And it's it's a bit of a blend of conceptual and technical. It is technical in the sense that there are many code examples. There is a set of notebooks that accompany uh, the book, and there's actually an entire prototype application that we build together throughout the book. And at the end of the book, you can just it has a GitHub repo. You can go and try it out. Uh, but it's also conceptual in the sense that a lot of these topics are more about how you frame problems than just like copying code off of Stack Overflow. Uh, and so there's sort of interviews with uh, data science leaders that have done this sort of thing. There's an entire section about like data ethics and how you think about shipping models and when you should and shouldn't. Um, So it's a bit of a hybrid book in that sense.
0: Nice, nice. I flipped through it and uh, saw some of my favorite folks in here, Monica Regatti and Rob Monroe, and I guess we know some of the same people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, small world. One of the things that I noticed, uh, and I I haven't gone through it in, in... a lot of detail. I mentioned to you that, like, I literally just got this out of the mailroom here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the structure of the book is that you develop a sample application, as you mentioned, and the sample app is predictive text. Mm-hmm. How did you pick that app for context?
1: Yeah that was one of first of all that's a really good question because that was one of the the parts that I went over the most times and just changed my changed my mind very many times about which application should be the running example and in fact mm-hmm. I had a conversation mm-hmm. with uh, Monica Rogati where I pitched her on one of my initial ideas and she told me it was a terrible idea and I should definitely not oh what do was that. it uh, I wanted to do something that was like it would Listen to, poli- like, politicians' speeches and then like, compare with how they vote and tell you whether, like, what they were saying in their speeches sort of aligned with how they were actually voting. In like a to... fact
0: checker kind of thing?
1: Yeah, like some sort of automatic fact okay. checker. Uh, Time? It would have been timely. Right? It would have been timely. Uh, that's what I was thinking. But it would have also been pretty hard. The sort of – reconciliation of what's what's true and, and like what's not true very quickly gets into the, the realm of, of uh, opinion. And if you add sort of like the errors of a machine learning model to the nuanced worldview, it's like definitely one of those examples of apps that could do more harm than good. And so, mm-hmm. uh, Monica, talked to me off the ledge on that one. Uh, but
0: <laughs> What were some of our other ideas? Well, I considered doing
1: initially sort of computer vision examples because those are always the more uh, – Striking to, to sort of maybe newer folks to the field. Like it's, you know, a, an image is, is like a very powerful example. Mm-hmm. Um, but a thousand I felt, words. A thousand words, exactly. But I felt like they were sort of overused. And most ML tutorials are sort of some sort of like computer vision thing nowadays. So I wanted to do something different. And then I wanted to do tabular data because that's what I think what most people do in their day-to-day uh, for for most companies. Um, but I, I felt like there, there was less room for a standalone product there. Like sort of like bring your own tabular data has less less of a ring to it than like bring your own writing. Um, so I ended up settling on NLP uh, and then I, I, I wanted to do something that was um, most ML products aren't just one model. Like they're not just, you know, like you have a model that solves your use case perfectly um, and then you just chip it. They're usually a combination of sort of heuristics and rules and models and engineering work. Uh, and so I wanted a product that reflects that. And when I was thinking of products that did that today, Sort of writing um, and, and assisting people to write better is a crucial example of that, where you have, you can check for grammar, that's just rules, or you can check for vocabulary or for um, a variety of things. And then you can also help them improve their style. And that's more of something that you can learn with ML. So it was a, a nice blend that sort of reflects what happens in the real world,
0: I think. So does that mean that somewhere in this book, there are lots of regexes? No. We've, we've, uh, <laughs> we've chosen not to go down that path, but there could be.
1: Um, the book starts with very simple, so like, instead of, of uh, regular expressions, it's, you know, simple word counts that say, like, oh, how many adverbs are you using? Are you using and a little too much or that sort of stuff?
0: And so what's the overall kind of path or structure through the book? And kind of more importantly, what does it say about the way that you think folks need to approach these kinds of projects?
1: Yeah. the book is The book is broadly separated into – Four stages that I think generally make sense um, for for most ML projects. And I think a lot of time people focus a lot on, on training models. And then you talk to experienced data scientists and you hear, right, oh, 95% of the job is sort of looking at the data and shipping the model, not really training the model. Um, and so so this book purposely sort of almost ignores training models. It just assumes that you can figure that part out with uh, mm-hmm. the many really good courses around. Uh, and so the four approaches are sort of, or the four parts are going from whatever your goal is, your product, you know, what your company is doing, what you want to do, uh, to an ML approach and to a plan for that ML approach. Because I think at Insight and at Zipcar, I've seen just many projects fail just because it's the wrong ML approach. And if you had just chosen a slightly different approach, you'd be in a much better spot. The second step is sort of building your your MVP. Uh, That's something that was definitely the, the motto at Insight. And I think that Insight applied very well it was sort of encouraging people to start extremely simple and build a full project before they go, you know, diving down the rabbit hole of research. Mm-hmm. Um, the third part is, I think, one of the ones where I sat down with the most fellows over my time at Insight, which is like, how do you debug models? Uh, more often, like, if your model is either not working or if it's working, but the performance isn't sufficient, how do you know what you should do next? How can you sort of take a deep dive into what your model is doing, what your data looks like to actually decide what you do uh, in your next iteration cycle? And then the fourth step is sort of like deployment, monitoring, and uh, the concerns that come with uh, showing uh, the real world to a model and a model to the real world.
0: Yeah, I am really appreciating all of the focus that kind of the this real world ML and AI has been getting over the I don't know if I would say past year, past couple of years. I mean, it's something that we've spent a lot of time focusing on and led uh, us to produce the TwimbleCon AI Platforms conference last week to kind of talk to how folks in real organizations are tackling these broader problems. but. Even just over the weekend on Twitter, like I'm seeing tweets all the time, like, hey, it's not just about the model. It's not just about the model anymore. Uh, And there seems to be a kind of growing recognition that, you know, and not so much recognition, but more really appreciation that that that's the case and that kind of the broader workflow that takes you from an idea or a problem identification to getting a solution in production is – you know, multifaceted and, and involves much more than just training up a model.
1: Right. And, and to be fair, right, it used to be that just training up a model was, was pretty hard. And maybe you needed a team of, of people that understood sort of the internals deeply. But now, because the tooling has evolved so much, it actually is the case that the tooling's so good and the courses are so good to train models that that becomes relatively simpler than the rest.
0: Right, right. Yeah, we're uh, actually launching a study group um, in just a couple of weeks now. We do these study groups as part of our community where we'll do online courses together. And we've done a bunch of fast AI courses and Stanford courses. uh, But we're doing one starting with uh, kind of an intro webinar on the 15th of February uh, and then continuing on after that on this AI enterprise workflow course uh, that's really interesting, unlike any kind of formal, this is on Coursera, unlike any formal courses I've seen, this one touches on a bunch of the things that you cover in the book. So, you know, how do you structure data collection? How do you kind of visualize and analyze your data in an exploratory mode and kind of test hypotheses? Um, How do you identify data biases in the process of collecting your data um, you mentioned using multiple models. Um, you know, how do you use multiple models together with heuristics in order to build a solution? And then, you know, unit testing—like when do you see that come up in a machine learning course? Almost right. never. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, monitoring a model in production, deploying models with microservices. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, and I'll be putting a link into our show notes uh, so that anyone else that wants to take this course with me can do so. But it sounds like you are also of the belief that, you know, this is where the field needs to go in terms of actually getting value out of machine learning, kind of thinking about it more holistically.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think resources like the, the class you described are are really some of the most valuable, yeah, classes or, or, or lessons that uh, everyone can learn right now. Because I, it, this comes from a couple of things, which is, at Zipcar, at Stripe, and to some extent at, at Insight as well, you, you notice that the people that are able to contribute the fastest are sort of the ones that have the appreciation for the whole workflow. Um, mm. In fact, a lot of the times you'll see companies sort of maybe scope out projects for people that are like maybe interning, they're only here for a few months, and those projects are, are like just training the model, right? It's like they've done everything, <laughs> right. they've like... Thought about the product they've decided that for this product this is the model we need this is the data we have they've prepared the data they've decided how they're going to serve the model and they're like hey you know you have you're here only for eight weeks or something here's like a model train it and so well while, while that's you know a, a fun project uh, it, it turns out that if you want to have a meaningful impact doing all of these other parts is the part is what's going to be most helpful to your career at a larger company or even if you're building your own startup right so just actually getting it out the door
0: yeah I love that you're only 45 pages into this book before you're into the build your own end-to-end or build your first end-to-end pipeline chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that chapter, in the middle of that chapter, is like testing.
1: Yeah. So there's at the end of the first uh, chapter, there's also an interview with uh, Monica Rigotti, and she has this great concept that she talks about. She talks about the, uh, the impact bottleneck. Uh, and mm-hmm. sometimes w- one of the examples she gives is, is she says, like, well, sometimes your ML might be perfect, but you're still, your product is still dead. You're still dead in the water uh, because you, you've sort of, you know, kind of misunderstood a fundamental need of, like, how your users would actually interact with it. And this is more of maybe, like, a general, you know, software engineering. Like, first, you should talk to users before you build it. Um, but it's also a good ML tip to say, like, well, you should, as, as quickly as possible, get to the point where you can show the, like, UI to a, a friend or a user and have them try it. And then it gives out results, even if you don't have a good model, even if it's a heuristic, just because then you might notice that, like, oh, they're using it in a completely different way than you thought. And that super complicated model that you thought you needed, you actually don't need it at all. You need something else.
0: Yeah, that's kind of applying the lean startup type of approach, which, you know, I don't even know if it deserves a name or if it has a name. You know, if we need to call it by a name anymore, it's kind of how we do things with MVPs. But it's kind of applying that approach to flesh out some of the, you know, where it's just a bad idea.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And I think that approach is like more and more valuable as the iteration time goes up, right? So like if you don't show it to someone, but it takes you, you know, 50 minutes to build, eh, you've lost 50 minutes, that's okay. But if you don't show it to someone and you need to train a model and get the data and that whole process is going to take you two months, then you've you've lost a lot of time by not doing it.
0: You know, what I'm, I'm curious about is, there's, you know, the steps that you need to do to to kind of build this sample app. And then there's kind of the broader, you know, things that you need to think about to apply this methodology to your own problems. Right. You know, when you're doing things like walking folks through building the end-to-end pipeline for this app or acquiring a data set, like how do you – make sure it's tangible enough that you know you're moving t- you're making progress on your example application but also broad enough that they can take it and run with it.
1: Yeah, I think that's a that's a really great question. It's really hard to to think about how you balance that. And in fact, the reason a big part of the reason for having a sample app is to hold myself accountable so that my advice would actually be uh, practical and the methods that I gave were actually true, right? If I if I tell you something that's actually not going to work, then I'm going to have a hard time demonstrating to you that it works on this toy example. Yeah. And so most chapters are structured in a way where I try to give broad like this is how you generally look for a data set um, and, and try to to explore it. So, like for example, you would generally like if you have uh, a current uh, approach, right? Because you've you've built your plan in the previous chapter and you're saying, well, like we're going to we're gonna use this current approach, trying to think of problems that have sort of the same kind of approach, even if they're in a completely different domain. So maybe you're doing, you know, like some, uh, like reaction prediction for, for molecules, but maybe that looks just like text translation in a way, right, you're like predicting a sequence, uh, because another sequence, you can try to find that form, that first data set, the like translation data set, see if your approach works on that and then change to your current data set. So it's sort of like a general, how you do it and then I illustrate it as an example with okay well for this ml editor thing this is what we' like these are the data sets we're actually going to use um, so for most concepts I try to do both
0: the couple of examples or chapters that we've talked about like what are the the broad principles that folks need to be thinking about when they're building their first pipelines when they're acquiring their initial data sets
1: yeah so I think we we skipped a little bit over the, the first uh, section, but I think there's there's a broad principle in the first section of like going from a product to an ML approach that I generally find really valuable and find that, I don't know, I think everybody should do. Kind of sets the
0: tone for the rest of it, it sounds yeah, like.
1: Yeah, um, which is that for, for the same product goal, you have, again, many ways to do it, uh, m- many ways to tackle that problem using machine learning. So uh, an example I use is, let's say that you're um, you know, a, a retailer and you have an online catalog of items. And you want to help people when they're when they're typing something in the search bar to find the category or the types of items that, you know, they, they would want to buy. One way to do this, and maybe the simplest way to think about it, is you're like, oh, well, somebody's writing something in the search bar. I'm going to try to, like, autocomplete the rest of what they're going to say, right? So if they type hands, maybe you autocomplete, like, handbag or something, right? Uh, a, a slightly maybe like different approach is they type something and you try to identify which words in their query are relevant to product so if they're like I want you know uh, uh, like a handbag of this brand like you try to find the, the, the name of the brand and then a third approach that's even simpler is they type anything in that bar and all you do is you try to like classify it and like, is it about handbags is it about jeans is it about you know shoes or something else and those three approaches um, all would have a slightly different UI, right? You, you would build sort of the, the way you show results and the way you show suggestions slightly differently, but they all are basically, each successive approach is like an order of magnitude easier to do than the one before, especially if you don't have much data. Right? If you don't have much data, that final approach, building a classifier is something where you can label data for a few hours and you'll have a classifier that's decent. Um, if you wanna do the, the sort of like knowledge extraction part, that's gonna take you maybe a couple of days but you can probably get something that's pretty good if you want to go do the full like language model approach of predicting the next tokens that's going to require a lot of data and you're also going to have a lot more variance, where like sometimes you might predict some crazy things um, and unless you have the engineering resources to add that filtering layer on top that'll make it very hard to ship and so i think like a a, a question that generally people should ask is like what is the absolute simplest model in that bucket of model and i give sort of like a, a hierarchy of 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 models what is the simplest model that you could use that could solve what you're what you're currently trying to do. And then if that model's too simple and it's not good enough, you're it's fine. You can improve on it, but you'll have spent, you know, a couple hours building it instead of a couple months being a building a model that doesn't work.
0: And so with that in mind, we go into building the pipeline and acquiring the data set. What are some of the broad principles there? Yeah. So I think
1: there's this idea um, that I would say for any data project that you tackle, any new project, you should spend like a couple hours looking at the data. Um, and the couple hours is definitely the, the minimum time you should spend looking at the data. You could spend a lot more time. That's fine. But uh, you should never spend less than a few hours looking at the data. Uh, looking at the data means a few things. And I found that in my experience at Insight, often um, people think about it in terms of aggregates, right? They're like, okay, well, you know, I'm looking at this this database of, like, texts. What's the average length of a mm-hmm. sentence? You know, how many different words are there? And that's fine. And that's something that you should, you should do uh, both to find errors or things that surprise you where you're like, oh, I was looking at like a database of tweets and somehow like all the tweets are one word long, there's probably something wrong. But you should also actually look at individual examples and that's something that Rob Munro actually talks about a lot. where. A lot of these individual examples will be the source for which model you end up choosing, right? So you have your product goal on one side, you've said like okay, well, maybe like a classifier is a simple thing I can start with. But then looking at the data will give you your initial set of like features or or of of like types of model that you think could reasonably capture um, what you're trying to identify in this data set. And so in the chapter I go into, well, how can you look at individual examples in a data set? That's hard, right? If you have an exa- if you have a data set with like 10,000 examples or 10 million you're not going to look at all of them. And so there's some methods where you can you can basically use some some like NLP approaches or some approaches from other domains to embed your data. And then once you have this sort of like map of all your data points you look into each specific sub-area and you're like, oh, like this sub-area, you know, for me, for the uh, editor uh, example, it was questions on Stack Overflow. So this area of questions, like they all seem to be about, you know, the English language. And so they use a lot of like maybe complex words and they have like longer sentences. Oh, this area, you know, is all about like non-native speakers, that sort of stuff. And so then it helps you like build features where it's like, okay, well, how can I identify a good question in this area or in that area?
0: Do you have a sense for... How you know when you have done enough looking at your data in aggregate or as individual uh, items that you're you know you're ready to move on? Is there a feeling or a sense or a checklist or something that beyond just, hey, I've you know looking at my watch here, the two hours is up right. I can move on to the fun stuff like what what should you have taken away from that? Uh, experience yeah that's uh,
1: that's something that I think obviously is gonna depend uh, on your data set so you are right. sometimes it's gonna be two hours sometimes it maybe gonna be two days sometimes you're gonna realize that something's very wrong and you you shouldn't move on right if you realize that something's off you should go back to the drawing board and and sort of like get another data set or look at why your data is looking all all weird Um, but in the case where you are ready to move on to a model I'd say that that's when you have a strong hypothesis about how your model will actually do its work. So, you know, if uh, we've talked about like the retailer that like you you type queries and then it tells you like, oh, is it a handbag? Is it like something else? Well, if you look at a bunch of examples and you realize that really there's, you know, only two or three ways that people ever say handbag or jeans, um, that the, the vocabulary is like pretty simple, uh, that sentences are usually pretty short. You can say like, okay, well, for this approach, like, you know, sort of like a, a simple, uh, bag of words with like word counts will work because I, I'm reasonably confident that like all I need to know is a, is like what which of these three words is in the sentence. Um, more generally, I think what I'm trying to say is when you build your first model, you should already have the part goal, that's section one, and then a hypothesis about how your model, like what will make your model succeed. That's like the part two of looking at the data set. Because then once you've trained your model, what you wanna do is you wanna check your results against your assumption. You want to say, like, okay, well, I thought that, like, because sentences are short, um, you know, the model would be easily able to pick up on different words. But it turns out that it's not, or it turns out that it's not performing on these. And then you can go back to the data, right, and say, like, okay, well, let's look at the examples that my model got wrong. And, like, why did it get these wrong? And then make a new hypothesis. And that's the fastest way and generally the most, the best way to iterate because it'll, it'll actually, uh, let you understand how your model is working, which once you're ready to deploy it, you'd much rather be like, oh, well, I'm pretty sure that this is how my model is making decisions rather than like, I trained a model. It got a really high score. I hope everything goes well.
0: Do you talk about explainability in the context of models? Uh, that's something that uh, is getting a lot of attention for folks that are you know, particularly working in business or enterprise types of environments. Yeah,
1: this is this is the, a topic that gets here. Yeah, a lot of attention, a lot of debate. There's generally a
0: few ways to look at explainability. Um, I, I'd say there's- And I'm asking primarily from the perspective of having a sense of what your model is doing so that you can better debug it. Yeah, so there's two parts to that. One part is to have
1: a sense uh, and to debug it, you need to look at like, the internals of your model. And then you can look at like its feature importance, its coefficients, that sort of stuff that gives you some sense of explainability. But then there's actually looking at individual data examples um, or even like multiple data examples, but trends in results on examples, which I think gives you a much better sense of explainability. And what I mean by that is looking at what are um, the like 10 examples where your, let's say your classifier was the most confident uh, uh, that it was class one, but it, but your classifier was wrong. Right. What are the ones where it was most confident uh, of the other class? What are the ones where... It was the most unsure, like looking at those examples and seeing like, oh, you know, it seems like every time there's a question that's 16 sentences long, the model just doesn't know what's going on. It just gives up. Um, That gives you one sense of explainability. And the final sense of explainability that I think a lot of people talk about is black black box explainers. So like uh, SHAP values or Lime, and we actually use those pretty heavily in the book because you can use them to power uh, suggestions for your users. So again the the example of a case study is like something that's going to help you write better. So you give it something you wrote, a question you've wrote, and then we have our model that predicts whether you wrote something basically good or bad for some definition of good or bad. And then we use lime to say like oh, you know, we said that this question was like 60% good. These are the features that, if you were to change them, would push your questions towards the positive class more. Right? We're like, okay, well, it seems like you know, your question's much too long. So if you cut it down, actually, like we would have said that it was much better. That sort of stuff. So you can use explainability to power sort of user-facing suggestions. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Is that done commonly? Do you see that a lot? I I see that in a few cases. I think
1: it's there's there the um, no example is perfect, and so the ML Editor definitely has a few things where it's like, well, how how wildly applicable is that? But out of companies that that do that sort of stuff, that do help people write better, uh, I actually have an interview with Chris Harland, who is from uh, Textio, where they, they do that for uh, general job postings and job communication. And they do mention using um, sort of similar methods, at least to, to surface potential features, because they have... Whenever you're doing writing recommendations, the real challenge is that you want your users to understand them. And so explainability becomes crucial because, like, if I give you anything and you don't understand why I'm recommending it to you, then you're not going to use my product. And so, for a subset of ML products, explainability isn't just a bonus, it's what the product is.
0: You mentioned Lime. Uh, For folks that want to learn more about that, you can check out my seventh interview ever (laughs) with Carlos Gestrin back in October of 2016. What are some of the other things that come up from a debugging perspective? I think from the debugging perspective, we
1: end up going back to the iteration loop conversation we had earlier, which is one debugging tip that actually um, Ross gave me, which you interviewed uh, earlier, uh, and that is used widely at Insight and and elsewhere. I've seen it used throughout the industry is when when your model doesn't work, not just when um, when you're not happy with its current score, but when something's not working, uh, you should cut down your data set to one or two examples and then get your model to work. Hmm. Like, by working, what I mean is just get your model to train uh, and then output predictions. They'll be completely random because you're overfitting on a couple examples. Um, yeah. But that alone... But I'm if thinking. you can't do that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the there's sort of... Um, like, that. that's helped so many... Uh, fellows and, and honestly like colleagues at, at previous companies where like if every every training run takes four hours and at the end you have like you know a shape mismatch or something like it is the most infuriating process you can go through mm-hmm. so for the- so
0: should you just start there or should you regress there when the st- when things aren't working i think there's nothing wrong
1: with sort of starting with the hail mary of like i'm going to write my code this is this should work um and then if it doesn't, then I think the first step is going there like if, if okay. you've, you've written your your first training loop and like something's very wrong, the first step is you're like, okay, uh you know you, you go to your first line and you like take x train equals like x train uh, period two, like you just take yeah. a couple examples and then you run it again and you try to get that to work. Uh, and in fact, in debugging i I mentioned like three steps. The first step is that, uh, which I call debugging the wiring, like making sure that data can go mm-hmm. back and forth mm-hmm. Then I think the first step is uh, debugging training performance. Once once you've debugged that first aspect, what you want to see is like, can I overfit on my data set? And so if you take a data set of like, you know, 2000 examples, can you train a model so that it becomes very good on this data set? Once more, this model isn't going to be good in production because you've trained it to just be good on data it's already seen. Uh, But again, if you can't do that, you're probably not going to be able to train a model that learns general things at all if it can't learn local features. Um, and then finally you debug generalization and so these three successive steps are, are steps that honestly, I think Most uh, program directors at Insight, for example are very used to like helping uh, Their fellows walk through each of these steps successfully, but I haven't seen as many resources to sort of like outline them So if you just follow that recipe usually you'll debug your models much much faster It's like the the hierarchy of like what you should debug um, in, in three steps
0: what categories of models are covered in the book? Is it, you mentioned TF IDF and you also mentioned that you composing multiple models. Mm-hmm. Are you using both kind of traditional Python models, scikit-learnish, you know, types of models, or are you doing deep learning as well? Um, what's the, you know, portfolio look like?
1: Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's a, uh... let me think. How many? Um, We have about, we have three models that are used in the main example. And then I'd say like probably half a dozen examples of of other models as like sort of separate from the case study is like, this is how you would use VGG to extract features from images, for example. For the main application, the the models we use are pretty simple. It starts with a heuristic, that's not even a model. So, So you haven't written the BERT version yet? No, I have not I have purposefully <laughs> stayed away from, from Burr. Uh and that's not to say I have anything against Why
0: purposely stay yeah, yeah elaborate yeah, yeah. on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um no I don't have anything against uh sort of like more more recent approaches. Of course they're like breakthroughs. But I but I think one, they're covered enough. I think if if you talk to, to sort of somebody that's either new to the field or even working in an LP and you ask them like out of all of the blog posts and research articles and things you've uh, you've read recently, how many of them were about like deep language models? And they'd probably say like, well, 85%. So I didn't feel like I needed to sort of like add my brick onto that cathedral. At the same time, a lot of the advice about building practical applications apply regardless of the model that you use. And so I felt that for readers, it was best if I kept with models that were as simple as possible because I didn't want to just add complexity for the sake of adding complexity like I think mm-hmm. you know if you were to use BERT or something more complicated you could probably get like just a better performance metric on some of these models but to the point of this book uh that's something that you do in iteration number four number five number six number seven the book shows you the first three iterations which is one you build your sort of like first first sab at a crappy heuristic Number two, you build a simple model. Number three, you build a slightly more complicated model. And number four, actually, and I guess this is a spoiler alert, but you look at your more complicated model and you realize it's too complicated and you remove some of the useless features to make. So the final model we use in the prototype. Um, but yeah, if I had so you team... wouldn't be
0: following your own advice if you you know jump right into Bert in chapter two. Exactly. exactly.
1: <laughs> if, if somebody wants to write a sequel to this book, I think there's like a lot of room to try BERT and GPT-2 and, and you know, other more complicated approaches. But I think, yeah, in general, even in... Industry- what would that
0: be called? Building more complicated machine <laughs> yeah. learning powered applications?
1: <laughs> yeah, it'd be called, the, you know, building applications the third year. It's like we, when you join a team uh, at a company, the first uh-huh. year they're doing this. And then if the team's been around for like 10 years, they're just throwing anything they can at the wall. They're like, oh, let's try BERT, you know, let's try anything.
0: Uh, we didn't cover the, the feature importance stuff. You spent quite a bit of time on feature importance. How do you see that coming up?
1: Yeah, I think in, in this case, right, it was especially useful because we make uh, suggestions for users based on the features. Of our so model.
0: that application-specific as opposed to a general um, step in the process? Um, good question. So
1: feature importance is a step for debugging. Uh, where, especially if you, if you're doing a, uh, so if you're using a model that has many features, either because it's a deep learning model and just does its own feature generation, or, you know, you just have like a tabular data set with thousands of features, uh, looking at feature importance can help you check the assumptions that we talked about. Meaning like you've made assumptions, you said like, well, because length of a question is important, it'll be an important feature. And then you look at your features and it's not, you know, it's like the importance is zero, Mm -hmm. then your assumption was wrong. And so, as part of your iteration cycle, looking at feature importance is really valuable. Um, the the specific ch- chapter you're talking about, which is using feature importance to make recommendations, I would say is the only chapter in the whole book that's very, very specific to the to the emulator. It's sort of it was actually um, reviewers of the book said like the book is great, but I feel like. We should have a deep dive into the the sort of like ML editor at some point that's, that like wraps things up. And so this is this is the the book's attempt at that. Of like, okay, well let's take everything together and actually get the ML editor to like a, a ready product.
0: And then the last part of the book goes into deployment and moder- monitoring. What are the uh, the key takeaways there? Yeah. So there's
1: um, there's like three main aspects that are covered there. One is the just the the ethics of deployment and the things that you should um, Think about when you deploy ML models. I this chapter is mostly about resources that I share. There's actually an, exe- an excellent free O'Reilly book about uh, data ethics that I link to in this in this chapter. And there's um, there's a lot of there's a big body of work, but I try to just give some some aspects that you might want to want to think about based on recent research. Um, then the other two aspects are just what is the engineering work around models, both as you deploy them and once you've deployed them. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of takeaways from the engineering work are for most uh, complicated models. So, like, think um, famously, the uh, Google Smart Reply. So, Google Smart Reply is you get an email and they suggest those three responses that you could use. Uh, not the new version where you press tab and it just auto completes, the one where it like, just suggests uh, sort of uh, f- yeah responses you can just click on. That model is a relatively complicated model. And because of that, it fails on a non-zero number of emails. And so before running that model, they have what's called a filtering model, which is a much simpler model, which the goal of that model is to say like, should we run our model or not? And so I cover like tricks like these tricks, right? For example, like, can you, when should you decide that it's worthwhile to build a, a first model that's like a much simpler one that will save you compute time and save you from showing ridiculous results to your users if, if like this input is not suited for your, your complex model? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last chapter goes into sort of like CI, CD uh, and monitoring for ML and uh, like what you can look at when you're like A-B testing or when you're putting a new model in production. A lot of companies have started doing what's called like uh, shadow deployments where like you put a model into shadow, which means that it's, it's just like a real model except that you don't actually use what it produces. But that's right. the sort of like final way to test it.
0: Yeah. Nice. And so what's the – you know, I referred back to – the Twimokan AI Platforms Conference and some of the writing that I've been doing on AI ML platforms and, and kind of open source and commercial products that like enable you to build out these workflows and kind of manage these workflows for you. I'm assuming that you're not like building all of this in one of those environments. How are you like stringing together the pieces that you're doing? Is it all kind of standard... Vanilla Python? Are you building on Vanilla Python using any particular kind of approach to make this modular? Or are you worried about that? You know, how are you um, pulling this all these workflow components together? I mean, there is
1: a world where, you know, in like a few years, something comes out like the TensorFlow, but just for all of machine learning, maybe it'll be TensorFlow. And Mm -hmm. this is all obsolete where people are just like, well, you could just, you know, like write one line of this this sort of new framework. Um, And uh, I'm willing to take that risk. Uh, In the current state, I, I feel like while there's many useful tools, it wouldn't necessarily be what readers are looking for, like they're not necessarily looking to to learn how to use ScoopFlow or, or, you know, how to use uh, Airflow for, for sort of scheduling DAGs. Um, so I kept things pretty lightweight, where most of it is in raw Python, you know, there's simple unit testing, Jupyter notebooks to illustrate concepts, and then for the serving side, built a simple Flask app with some examples of like how you'd cache requests um, and that i think serves the purposes of uh, of the book well when whenever possible i've added sort of links to resources where it's like well if you want to know more about how you would for example build models on device like you might want to check out this resource mm-hmm. um, but but for the actual code examples again i wanted to because the book already has the tall order of covering all of machine learning i felt like i wanted to yeah. keep it pretty focused
0: cool Um, so when should we expect the, you know, volume two, second edition, your, your next, uh, your next book (laughs) Uh,
1: after a long vacation. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I mean, depending on, on how well this, uh, this book goes, it was really, um, it was actually a really enjoyable process to, to write it with O'Reilly. The process of writing a book, you know, I would recommend to no one that's horrible, but O'Reilly made (laughs) it as unhorrible as, as possible. So nice. Awesome.
0: Uh, well, Emmanuel, is great catching up with you. Uh, congratulations on getting this book published. Uh, we've been chatting about it for a bit, at least conceptually. You know mm-hmm. that it was something that you're laboring under, and um, I'm super excited to you know see it, have an opportunity to hold it in my hand, and uh, chat with you about it on the show. Awesome, thank you, Sam. All right, thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today.